I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to Introvets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to Introvets Podcast. Greetings. Today, we have a case for you. Exciting. (laughs) Typically, when we read a case... The identity of everyone involved is disguised, you know, for privacy. Uh, And this is a little bit more of a special case, though, because the veterinarian who has sent us this case got permission from the owner to share it and gave us permission, you know, to give them credit and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's exciting. Now, we have changed the name of the patient, okay? But uh, we are actually not going to change really any details of the case uh, like we normally would um, because uh, there's no reason to do that because everyone is cool with the case being talked about openly. So that's very exciting. Mm -hmm. This case comes to us all the way from the United Kingdom. Fancy. I like it. And it was submitted by Kaziah Cooper. Hi, Kaziah. Thank you, Kaziah, for sending us a case. Dr. Cooper. Okay. So we're going to dive right in. JJ is going to read the case. Okay. So we have Honey, who is an 11-year-old female spade Labrador retriever, weighing in at about 30 kilograms, which is 66 pounds. The patient's all up to date on routine vaccines, but is not taking any monthly parasiticides. Uh, Honey was last seen two weeks ago for vomiting and diarrhea, which has since cleared up. And today she is presenting with a two-day history of lethargy and one-day history of having a strange facial expression. I, too, have strange facial expressions. (laughs) Well, (laughs) this one might be a little bit more strange than normal. (laughs) Okay, so Honey's eyes look tight. Her ears are pulled back, and this is creating forehead wrinkles. And she's also not wanting to eat and moves with a stiff gait, which is not typical for her at all. Hmm. Okay. So the primary presenting complaint is this weird facial expression. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. What was seen on physical exam? She is technically bright, alert, and responsive, but she is less exuberant and vocal than she typically would be for a vet visit. Um, skin around the eyes has a tight appearance. There's no blepharospasm. Which is what? Uh, Squinting. Mm -hmm. Like your, uh, you know, bright lights hurt your eyes and you're like, oh, my eyes hurt. I'm going to squint them closed. That's my life. (laughs) The ears are drawn caudally. And she was walking with a normal gait, though she did slip on her hind limbs once, which was also unusual. There was a grade two systolic heart murmur, but normal lung sounds. And the owner reports no signs of exercise intolerance. Abdomen was tense on palpation. Body condition score was 7 out of 9, so we had a little chunky monkey. (laughs) Normal temperature at 38.7 degrees Celsius, which is 101.7 degrees Fahrenheit. We had a cyst-like structure noted on the fifth digit of the left forelimb, which had been noted previously, gone away, and reoccurred a few days previously. The skin um, over the cyst was grazed or irritated, but there was no obvious significant wounds or broken skin noted. Okie doke. Well, Mm -hmm. let's kind of make a problem list first for this case, because we have a lot going on in that really detailed and gorgeous description. Mm, We love it. So, JJ, what would a problem list for this patient consist of? Uh, We got the tight facial muscles, stiff gait, the heart murmur, and uh, lastly, we have the recurrent mass on the toe with some overlying irritation of the skin. Okay. Well, so anytime we have like multiple problems going on at one time, we have to try to figure out, if we can, which of these things are related to one another and which are just in the way. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're always going to start by focusing on the thing that the owner brought the pet in for which is going to be these tense facial muscles and stiff gait. Uh, That's what the owner was worried about. That's what they're noticing. That's why the pet's here. But we do need to kind of, you know, keep our antenna up for any relation to the other things on our list. It sounds like the heart murmur is a new finding. Mm -hmm. Um, So may or may not be related to what's going on um, with that weird facial expression. 
And then we have this mass on the toe, you know, question mark, question mark. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about differentials. Mm -hmm. In talking about the differentials, what we're going to do is focus primarily on the presenting complaint, which is this weird facial expression. Okay. And there's there's a specific reason we're going to do that. There's one top differential that we need to discuss first, given the pets presenting clinical signs. Now, based on this description, it doesn't sound like the pet's lips are drawn back in this case, but the weird eye and ear appearance or the description of the weird eye and ear appearance reminds me of rhesus sardonicus or a sardonic grin. And that is a very specific clinical sign that should bring up a very specific differential. Mm -hmm. And so I am going to let the veterinarian who submitted the case give us this top differential. This is what they wrote. The only similar case I'd seen before this one was in vet school in the ICU of the referral hospital. That dog was admitted with hyperthermia and had much more severe muscle stiffness and lockjaw. That dog had tetanus. <laughs> Not tetanus. Tetanus. So tetanus really is our top differential with this weird facial expression. Mm. But let's talk about some other potential things that could cause this muscle like tightness. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I don't know of any other specific differentials for the sardonic grin. I'll try to get some approvals to post photos of the sardonic grin on social media so that people can see it. Uh, of course, I can't like just go willy-nilly post them without permission. But like if I can't, y'all go look this up because you will always remember what it looks like. <laughs> like it is a very specific look. I'm picturing the Joker. That's kind of what it looks like if the whole rest of the face were also tense, you know, mm -hmm. very um, the eyes will be like they'll look like, um, you know what it looks like. <laughs> OK, have you seen have you, <laughs> have you seen Men in Black? I mean, mm -hmm. everyone's seen that movie. It's really old now. OK, you know, the guy in the Edgar suit. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the bug lands, whatever. He steals Edgar's skin. Mm hmm. And uh, he goes back in and Edgar's wife is like, your skin is hanging off your bones. And he like takes the Edgar suit by the back of the head and pulls up. <laughs> yes. And is like, is this better? And she faints. And the, the appearance of the, you know, the bug in the Edgar suit trying to like make his skin fit right is similar <laughs> to what this looks like. Like it is um, like, you know. Uh, eyes wide, sometimes the third eyelids will be prolapsed, but like the forehead muscles will be so contracted that you'll get these wrinkles and the ears are like sticking straight up and not moving and they're like, Arr! it's it's very it exciting. Creepy. It is creepy. It, it does look creepy, which uh, reminds me, of, you know, look, it's October when this is airing uh, in present day as people are listening to this. So, mm -hmm. A Halloween adjacent thing. Tetanus is one of the proposed theories for like why there's this whole mythology surrounding demonic possession. Because if you look at drawings and illustrations of tetanus patients, they have this crazy fucking grin on their face and their back is arching off the bed, you know, and they would go into these convulsions. And so a lot of people think that people who were thought to be possessed were just tetanus sufferers. That's that's creepy. Yep, it is. That's... Now, I it, super am going to post that photo because it's widely available enough that I don't feel bad about the copyright. <laughs> but if you just Google tetanus, like on Wikipedia, the picture of the person, it's a, an illustration. It's not like a photograph. The That illustration is like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So back, got to stay on track, stay on track. Okay, so um, while I don't know other specific differentials for a sardonic grin, you know, we'd be thinking about some other neuromuscular disorder, okay? Mm -hmm. So the things that kind of seem to fit for me would be if we have low calcium. Mm -hmm. You can see a hypocalcemic tetany. We might have various types of muscle inflammation, so a myositis going on. 
and maybe toxic exposure, strychnine in particular, could mm-hmm. cause symptoms potentially like this. And then there's one uh, differential diagnosis, JJ, that always needs to be on our list anytime we have any sort of weird bullshit that seems like it could be neurologic, and that is... Rabies. Rabies. Um, however, this dog is vaccinated, so it would be much less likely. So, JJ, mm-hmm. because the pets presenting clinical signs are classic for tetanus, that needs to become the working diagnosis. And we can continue to look for like other evidence, you know, that we could be wrong about that. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of where we need to start. Agreed. Tell me all about the tetanus. Tetanus is a clinical syndrome that is caused by the toxin secreted by the bacterium Clostridium tetani. Clostridium tetani is a gram positive, motile, non encapsulated, anaerobic spore-forming bacillus. That's a lot of words to describe when little bacteria is. (laughs) Okay, the spores for Clostridium tetani are ubiquitous, meaning widespread in the environment, and are found worldwide. The spores are highly resistant to degeneration, and they survive for months to years. The organisms are actually present in the feces of many animals. And then increased moisture, any sort of soil disturbance, like if you're cultivating the soil or fertilization of the soil will promote growth of the organism. Mm. And uh, that's obviously like how the spores get into the environment. Goody. So. Get that vaccine. That's right. Avoid that rusty nail. (laughs) Well, we should talk about that, too. I didn't pull for this case any information about like human vaccination, We will talk a little bit about the relative susceptibility of, like, different species to contracting clinical tetanus. So we'll kind of talk about it there. But, yeah, there's a reason we don't really vaccinate dogs and cats for tetanus, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So back up. How does a creature or a person get tetanus? Okay, so the little spores that the organism produces are introduced into the body through either like open existing wounds that are just hanging out there without, you know, any kind of treatment or bandage or through like fresh puncture wounds. Okay. So you step on that nail. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, you hammer the nail through your thumb instead of through the wood. Okay. You, uh, what else? What other kind of thing? You tear your, you know, on like a barbed wire fence or something. Mm -hmm. You get a cut. Something like that. Just stay inside. (laughs) Well, JJ, that would not protect you from contracting tetanus. But of course it won't. (laughs) Because they are ubiquitous in the environment. Everywhere. That's right. Okay, so uh, this freaks me out. But from there, the sports vegetate, which I don't like the idea of that. Uh, It's very the last of us up in here. Mm. Um, Except we are not talking about a fungus. We are talking about a bacteria. Okay. Especially in contaminated wounds, okay? So, like, the bacteria, you know, vegetates significantly in necrotic tissue, in the presence of other bacteria, or if you've got a foreign object, okay? So, you got that, you step on that splinter or something, it's stuck up in your foot, you know, you're not, you haven't gotten a nap out of there, Mm -mm. it's going to be a nice area for Clostridium tetani to be super excited about. Yeah, I figured that out the hard way when I was little and was trying to play with a frog and I jumped into the azalea bushes and one of them little azalea bush sticks went right in my leg about that long. Yeah, I had. You, because this, we need to say how long it was because you pulled up your fingers, but. um, It was probably about, what's that, about an inch and a half? Yeah, two inches maybe. Yeah, I had about. 20, 25 injections of, I'm assuming, lidocaine, some sort of lumbing agent, which did not feel pleasant. And I got a tetanus shot. No, lidocaine sucks. Yeah, it hurt. It's worse. It was a bitch. Yeah. They had had to hold my little seven-year-old ass down because I was about to come up off the table. I hate lidocaine with Mm -hmm. fiery passion. Like Mm -hmm. when I I go to get an IV or something, they always want to do lidocaine first. And I'm like, no, no, the lidocaine is where I will just sit here. I promise I won't move. Just put the IV in. Mm -hmm. Please don't do the lidocaine. And they always argue with me. And don't get creeped out if I watch because I like to watch (laughs) you do it. And they're they're like, are you okay? I'm fine. Yeah. I'm I'm just like, damn. Anyway. Okay. Back up. It's one of the problems of being a that professional, I guess. So, okay, so the so the spores have vegetated and the bacteria is hanging out 
ugh, in your wound, okay? Or the dog's wound. Tasty. And, no, it's not. Uh, the bacteria produces endotoxins. And there are two known endotoxins. One is called tetanospasmin, and the other one is called tetanolysin. Mm-hmm. Tetanospasmin is what causes the classic signs of tetanus. The tetanospasmin enters the motor nerve axons near the neuromuscular junction, and then it moves up by retrograde intraaxagonal transport to the neuronal body in the spinal cord. And once it gets up in there, the toxin then ascends to the brain. Rude. Uh, Tetanospasmin can travel in the axon at a rate of 75 to 250 millimeters per axon. What does this description remind you of so far that we've covered on the podcast? Rabies. Rabies, yeah. Um, it did. When I was writing this, I was like, <laughs> this it reminds me strongly of our rabies discussion. And I was like, mm, creepy, creepy. Stay up at my nervous system, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, so once the tetanospasmin is hanging out in the brain, it blocks the release of glycine and gamma-aminobutyric acid. This GABA is the inhibitory neurotransmitter of the neurons. The toxin interferes with the neurotransmitter that calms your brain down. And so because it's interfering with the calmy calm uh, neurotransmitter, your brain is like ping, 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 ping. So I got tetanus? I don't think you have tetanus, no. <laughs> A little bit of tetanus. We're not saying this is the only thing that causes it. Okay. <laughs> Tetanospasmin binds to the presynaptic sites of inhibitory neurons, and it is, it is irreversible. And it also blocks neurotransmitters in the parasympathetic cardiac inhibitory center, that increases vagal tone and catecholamine release. Now, tetanolysin is a toxin that we don't know like a whole bunch about. It is non-spasmogenic. It has nothing to do, we don't think, with like clinical tetanus. It does uh, damage local tissue, though, and it might like play a role in promoting bacterial multiplication like in the wound. JJ, mm-hmm. tell me more about the susceptibility of dogs to tetanus versus animals of other species and people. Okay. So dogs and cats have a natural resistance to the effects of tetanus toxins compared to other animals, especially horses and humans. Um, the horse, guinea pig, monkey, sheep, mouse, goat, and human have high susceptibility, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, cattle, dogs, and cats are less susceptible. Cats have more resistant than dogs. Birds are also resistant. Frogs are not susceptible at low body temps, but susceptibility increases as their body temp increases. Um, their resistance is related to the inability of the neurotoxin to penetrate and bind to the nervous tissue. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. So if you are going to have tetanus, you need to be a frog, mm-hmm. a cold frog. So what happens if you like somewhere really cold? As a person? Yeah. Or as a frog? As a person. I don't think it matters as a person. So. Because um, in the frog, now look, now I'm having to operate purely off of memory here, okay? <laughs> but if I remember correctly, this study that I pulled that was talking about the susceptibility of different species, when we're talking like, Chili frogs, we're talking like 18 degrees Celsius is chili. So it can't replicate as well right. when they chili. But I feel like 18 degrees Celsius, what is that in Fahrenheit? Do you want me to math? Yeah, come on. I Look, don't I'll even remember it. the formula on how to do that. Celsius. I, I just had a flashback to like my elementary school science fair project where I don't remember fully what it was. It was something about. Oh, it was, I, I handmade like a barometer, you know, from a milk carton, that kind of thing, and then used it to test the humidity and whatever. And I had to calculate by hand a bunch of, like, temperature conversions. It made me irritated to my heart. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so 18 degrees Celsius is 64.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Not compatible with human life. Or dog or cat or horse life, at least. Mm. I feel like not compatible with warm-blooded animal life. So chili frogs 
um, can be 18 degrees Celsius, apparently, and be kind of okay. <laughs> but they at least won't have tetanus. Um, I like frogs. Yeah. They're cool people. So, Dr. Grata. Yes. What symptoms will you see with tetanus? That is a great question. Okay. Uh, well, you have generalized or localized tetanus. In localized tetanus, now this is what is more common in dogs and cats, it occurs near the wound site. So you're going to have contraction of a group of muscles or like the affected limb that's nearby to where the wound is. Okay. Mm -hmm. The other type is generalized tetanus. And as the name implies, multiple sites are affected there. The clinical signs of tetanus uh, usually develop within, say, five to 10 days of infection, but there's a significant range. So as little as three days or as long as 21 days from the introduction of the spores into the wound. And these signs happen more rapidly when the wound is closer to the central nervous system because it literally doesn't have to travel as far. Hmm. Um, there is also more rapid time between the spores getting introduced into the body and showing clinical signs if the environment where the bacteria is growing is more anaerobic or if you have a mixed infection with lots of gross contaminants up in there. You. Now, the clinical signs are going to vary somewhat depending on how bad of an infection you've got and maybe even like how long it's been going on. Okay. So the most classic clinical sign is muscle rigidity. Okay. Mm -hmm. This stiffness. And this is usually going to be on one or more limbs. And you might see a stiff gait like in Honey's case. Okay. Mm -hmm. You might see an outstretched tail. Oh. That's so sad. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. If the dog is really, really bad off, they might be fully recumbent, like laterally. They might have difficulty standing. Okay. Uh, because of this excitatory stimulus to, you know, to the nervous system here, the this toxin is binding. It's, it's preventing GABA from chilling everything out. Your dogs might be hyperreactive, okay? They mm -hmm. might overreact to light, to noise, and other types of stimulation. They might be really apprehensive when that's not normally them. The ears are going to be up, lips drawn back, and the forehead wrinkled from contraction of the facial muscles. This is the sardonic grin or rhesus sardonicus that we talked about earlier. Mm. Lockjaw or trismus can occur because of the masticatory muscles contracting. Urgh. So you might not be able to open the mouth. Okay. You might see um, difficulty swallowing, hypersalivation. You might see those prolapsed third eyelids. We mentioned that a little bit earlier. In ophthalmos, which is like a sunken in looking appearance to the eye. Mm. And then meiosis, that's pupil contraction, so little pupils. There are some secondary issues, some complications that we can have from tetanus mm -hmm. itself. Uh, so we might have something like pneumonia happen. These dogs might develop megaesophagus, hiatal hernias. They might experience urinary retention and get like a UTI secondary to that. We can see cardiac arrhythmias. Coxifemoral luxation. I have absolutely no idea why that's related, but it was in the literature. <laughs> Upper respiratory obstruction and then constipation. Okay. Some patients start having tremors and seizures as well. And then, unfortunately, you know, death is a possibility. Okay. And back a while ago, lots of people died from tetanus too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and, so, and horses, especially, like horses are highly susceptible, mm -hmm. as JJ mentioned. Um, horses would die of tetanus all the damn time. Poor nays. Yeah. So when death occurs, it's usually because of respiratory failure, because your respiratory muscles are so rigid that you can't adequately draw breath anymore and you suffocate. Okay. Mm -hmm. That sucks. You might also have laryngeal spasms and the increased secretions in the airway that contribute to this and then lastly you might see like respiratory arrest due to just central issues like in the brain mm. itself yeah sad it is sad it is shitty a shitty disease to have yeah 
What are some commonly seen physical exam findings? Well, the patient might have a recent history of some sort of a wound, okay? Trauma, foreign object. We can see tetanus postoperatively, okay? So it's been reported even after things like a spay. Sometimes um, tetanus develops as a complication of pregnancy and birth, especially if a fetal death has been involved. And then tooth-root abscesses. So um, broken, um, deciduous teeth, especially. So, yeah, you can get tetanus from that. Makes sense. There's a nerve right there. Yeah. Now, detectable wounds might not be noted. So the absence of an obvious wound does not mean that your patient who is grinning sardonically at you doesn't have tetanus. Okay, it probably does. In one study, 31 out of 42 dogs with tetanus had a detectable wound. So, you know, a you know, significant portion of the dogs didn't have one in that study. Now, with localized tetanus, we will see that increased stiffness in the muscle or limb closest to the wound, like we talked about earlier. We're going to see a rigid limb that's hypertonic, and then we can also see muscle tremors. The myotactic reflexes are going to be exaggerated. And flexor reflexes will be actually decreased. If localized tetanus is not recognized and is allowed to progress, then it will progress ultimately to generalized tetanus. When that happens, the stiffness spreads to the opposite limb and then eventually affects the entire central nervous system. (laughs) Now, in those patients who have generalized tetanus, um, they are going to walk stiffly or not be able to walk at all. Um, They're going to have an outstretched or dorsally curved tail. And then their muscles are going to be extremely rigid, especially the extensor muscles, okay? So if you think about all the pet's limbs extended at one time, okay? And with a weird-looking face, okay? That's what they look like. They are going to obviously have trouble standing if their limbs are all extended all the time, okay? They may have an elevated body temperature or hyperthermia because of all of the energy that that muscle contraction is generating. Okay, we're going to get hot. And then there's a classic sawhorse stance that you can also recognize. So besides the sardonic grin, if if the animal is just standing there like a sawhorse with those limbs completely extended or they're laying on their side like that. Okay, Mm -hmm. think tetanus. Now, in the late stages of localized tetanus, or at any point in generalized tetanus, we can start to see some brain signs. There is hypertonicity of the facial muscles because the cranial nerve motor nuclei are affected by that neurotoxin that we talked about earlier. Again, protrusion of the third eyelid, small pupils, and sunken in eyes in ophthalmos might be seen. We're going to have that erect ear, lips drawn back, sardonic grin expression. And then um, with significant enough contraction of those masticatory muscles, then we're going to progress to lockjaw. And then we'll see dysphagia, difficulty swallowing, uh, obviously because of the jaw, Mm -hmm. you know, tightness. Okay. And then we talked already about some of the complications that we can have from the symptoms of tetanus. So again, a pneumonia, Uh, You can experience aspiration, autonomic disturbances, difficulty breathing and coughing. You might get a mega esophagus or hiatal hernia, and then they can start regurgitating from that. And then you might see urine retention or constipation uh, because the anal and urethral sphincter muscles are contracting consistently, and that sounds like it sucks. And then if you have, you know, a patient that is not able to walk and they're down for a long period of time, then you can have problems with that, respiratory tract infections, urinary tract infections, bed sores, if you're not being turning, um, if you're not turning them appropriately. And then um, if they're little bitty babies, they might not be able to latch on and suckle. Okay. Uh So they might not be able to get um, nutrition that way. And then some dogs have tetanic seizures. So let's talk about some common diagnostic findings in patients with tetanus. Mm-hmm. Is there like a tetanus test we can run? Unfortunately not. Um, there's nothing you can definitively test for um, while they're still alive. 
So necropsy only. Okay. And so diagnosis is usually made off of clinical signs. So, you know, you see them coming in with the the stiff the stiff legs and the the funny grin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tetanus until proven otherwise. Yeah. Now, um, running some additional tests though it is warranted again, just to make sure that we're not seeing evidence that it could be something else. Mm-hmm. So make sure the calcium's not out of whack, like we talked about earlier. Things like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if we truly have tetanus, if we truly have tetanus, we're probably going to have a kind of a lot of nonspecific findings, okay? Now, they might include neutrophilia on a CBC because maybe we've got some wound necrosis going on or infection of wounds, uh, you know, in the body. Mm-hmm. On a biochemistry profile, you might see elevated CK and AST because of those muscle contractions, okay? And then... Hyperlactidemia has also been seen. Um, this might be due to increased anaerobic metabolism, again, because of those continuous muscle contractions. All of those, obviously, are nonspecific findings. Mm-hmm. Okay, You could consider trying to culture obvious wounds and see if you could culture clostridium tetani. But this is difficult, and uh, the literature is, like, unrewarding (laughs) (laughs) because um, it only takes just a few of these organisms to create pretty bad clinical signs. So they're usually in low numbers, so they're hard to culture out. And then you have to have the culture be strictly anaerobic, which presents other problems. Mm -hmm, And it takes flipping 12 days to grow it. (laughs) So by the time you got the test back, you needed to have started treatment for tetanus or else your patient going to be dead. Well, you could do it in space and then come back and that'll probably... <laughs> do it in space. <laughs> well, you know, that is probably really cost effective, okay? <laughs> Hypoxemia, you might see that if we're getting a blood gas again because of all the muscle rigidity and you're just not breathing well. On x-rays, we might see mega esophagus or pneumonia because those are secondary signs. Of course... There are plenty other causes of megasophagus and pneumonia, so these are still non-specific findings. And um, serology does exist. Okay, you don't really use this for diagnosis, though. Mm-hmm. So serum antitoxin antibodies could be elevated in generalized tetanus cases, but they're not useful to diagnose localized tetanus because insufficient toxin is produced to get a measurable antibody response. So this really isn't something that we use to, to figure this out or to treat or to guide treatment. On echocardiogram, you could see cardiac arrhythmias, decreased heart rate or increased heart rate. You might see AV block, sinus arrest, or ventricular escape complexes. Again, all nonspecific findings. Okay, <laughs> There's no like pathognomonic ECG finding. And then electromyography, you're going to see spontaneous motor unit potentials that are pretty persistent. Electromyography could be helpful in diagnosed localized tetanus, potentially. Mm. So, not a great way to test for it. That's why it's so important to recognize the classic clinical signs and hop onto the tetanus train uh, fully while, you know, you keep an open mind about other stuff, but like it's tetanus till proven otherwise and we need to put the gas on the floor. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, JJ, mm-hmm. how common is tetanus in dogs overall and what types of dogs do we tend to see this in? So it's pretty uncommon in dogs because of their natural resistance. Um, so young dogs, large breed dogs, those are the most commonly affected. Um, tell me about specific therapy. First, you're going to consider giving the tetanus antitoxin. With really mild disease or very localized symptoms, they might not need this. Um, Again, because dogs have this innate resistance to the tetanus toxin. Some studies have shown that there is no significant difference in survival between dog and cat patients who received the antitoxin versus those that did not. The tetanus antitoxin does need to be administered pretty early in the course of the disease in order to, you know, neutralize the circulating toxin before it binds. Because we talked about earlier, that binding is not reversible. So once it binds, it can't really be affected by the, uh, by the antitoxin. Additionally, the tetanus antitoxin cannot cross the blood-brain barrier. 
So there's no way for it to neutralize the toxin that's already bound in the central nervous system. Hmm. Um, let's see here. There, there are two different types of immunoglobulin tetanus antitoxin. I'm just going to kind of leave our explanation of that there. If this is something that you want to learn more about, I would encourage you to grab your formulary, grab a book chapter, grab some studies on it, and that kind of a thing to look up the different types and, you know, see whether it makes sense for you to stock this type of medication at your individual clinic. I personally can't think of a time when I've worked at a general practice here in Alabama where we stocked something like this. Can you, JJ? Mm -mm. In my experience, this is going to be like at referral hospitals that you're going to have access to this type of care. Now, the next type of treatment that we need to talk about is really the mainstay of treatment here, which is antibiotic therapy. So we need to obviously administer antibiotics that are going to target and eliminate the vegetative state Clostridium tetani organisms and therefore decrease the toxins that are produced so that we can get rid of the clinical signs. Critical patients, uh, those guys that can't eat anything, they got lockjaw, they're lateral, they need IV antibiotics just because how are you going to get them to take it orally, mm -hmm. you know? And then oral administration, you know, there's nothing wrong with that if the dog can prehend and swallow normally, but you would be, you know, at a risk for them choking and that kind of thing um, if they are severely compromised. You need to use some sort of antibiotic that's going to penetrate anaerobic tissue really well, and we need really good anaerobic um, activity there. I'm going to preface this by saying that if you have a patient that you suspect has tetanus, please get your formulary and book chapters out, maybe your ER book. <laughs> Do not like rewind to this part of the podcast and be like, yes, let me tell let me write down the critical dosing information from this. No, do not do that. <laughs> okay. This is for general purposes. Please get your, you know, best reference out that you can hold in your hand and look at it from there. Okay. But we're going to progress with our general statements about antibiotic therapy. Hit me. Okay. Penicillin G. Mm hmm which I think of as kind of, this might be bad, but I kind of think of it as like a throwaway drug. Like, why would you even need to stock it? Uh, well, guess what? Tetanus. <laughs> it can be helpful with tetanus. That was a mainstay in the fridge okay. in the 90s. That's right. Okay. So, Pengee can be effective, okay? However, like, metronidazole is kind of the drug of choice on this. Hmm. Um, so, it's got um, higher activity against clostridium tetani than does Pengee. It is the most popular first-choice antibiotic for tetanus based on this one study of 53 dogs. In that study, 35 of the 53 were treated with metronidazole initially. Okay. Now, other options exist. Those include things like clindamycin, tetracycline. Okay. Um, and sometimes you will use like a combination of drugs. Okay. If I was going to reference them in order from the Vencyclopedia article about tetanus in dogs, yeah, I would read, quote, number one, metronidazole, number two, PNG, number three, clavamox, amoxicillin clavulonic acid, number four, ampicillin sublactam, that is unison, for those uh, familiar with the uh, ER and <laughs> intensive care side, that you know that drug well, clindamycin, and then tetracycline. Now, the other big part of treatment for tetanus is going to be the supportive care. Mm -hmm. Because you may remember, we've said it a few times, that once that toxin binds, it is not unbindable. You're screwed. So we have to provide intense supportive care for the most significantly affected patients, sometimes even for like quite a long time before they get back to normal. The first thing to look at is going to be Treatment to help with symptoms like muscle contractions, um, tremors, or seizures. So you could consider using various sedatives for that. You might need to go to anticonvulsant therapy for those things. Uh, when using these types of medications, you do have to just try to balance your need to help the patient with its clinical signs with the potential CNS depression of these drugs. Because if you severely depress the nervous system of a dog that's laterally recumbent and can't like swallow well, like that could be a problem. Mm -hmm. So medications you might give like opioids that have respiratory depressant qualities might 
negatively affect these guys that are having a hard time contracting their respiratory muscles to breathe well. Mm. So, in general, what we're looking at would be potentially a combination of phenothiazines and barbiturates. You might consider phenothiazines with benzodiazepines. Uh, you might consider opioids. You might consider low-dose ketamine. You might consider something like a fentanyl CRI. Okay. The bottom line here is going to be that you need to titrate these doses of medications to how the pet is presenting and choose wisely based on their clinical signs. Methocarbamol is another option that is used pretty often to help with tremors specifically. We talked about that in a recent episode. I don't remember which one offhand. But methocarbamol, if, you're, if your pet is tremoring and not having active seizures, methocarbamol is a fantastic choice. It works really, really well. It was probably one of the snacks. I bet, yeah, a recent toxicity. That caused them. Have we done tremorogenic mycotoxin yet? Oh, we haven't. Mm-hmm. Oh, we need to do that one, JJ. Oh, my. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this eating moldy fruit. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Is that um, Let's do that one next. Let's compost? do that one next week. Like, do they eat, like, compo- have the compost? Um, similar? You could have them potentially eat out of the compost. My cousin had a dog that ate the compost. Too. I've seen it. Now, we're getting way off topic here, yeah. but real quick, I've seen it with dogs, like, in the fall as, like, fruit trees in the yard have matured and the fruit has dropped and no one harvested it and mm-hmm. now it's moldy. And the dogs are eating the damn moldy pears or whatever, or moldy berries off the ground, and then they come in tremoring. Or, like, the other classic history I'll see is the owner just cleaned the fridge out. Mm. And then the dog got into the trash. So, it mm-hmm. ate a bunch of the moldy spaghetti or whatever that was in the fridge, and now they're tremoring. Anyway, that's super off topic. We <laughs> might cut that part out um, in favor of just re-recording <laughs> next week. But, yeah, we should totally do that next week. Okay. 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 All right. Good podcast planning session. All right. Back to supportive care. Okay. Mm-hmm. Magnesium sulfate can be used potentially to reduce muscle spasms, and it also minimizes sedation requirements in affected patients, which is interesting. Mm. Um, The magnesium decreases calcium entry into presynaptic terminals at the neuromuscular junction, and it also decreases sensitivity of the motor end plates to acetylcholine. The goal of treatment and how we guide dosing is that we want the serum magnesium, like the total magnesium, to be between two and four millimoles per liter, and then you monitor it. Now, that presents a little bit of a problem again in private practice, as we've covered in a a different episode. You can't just, like, point-of-care test magnesium. Like, Mm -hmm. there's no—I actually looked it up. Like, I did all of the— you know, IDEX, uh, like all of the labs, none of them had point-of-care magnesium tests. They all had to be sent out. So anyway, hmm. just something to keep in mind there. Now, seizures, true seizures with tetanus are not common. They are rare, okay? Um, but you would treat them like you would treat other seizures. So we're going to use diazepam, midazolam, okay? And then if they progress to status epilepticus, grab your chapter, read about it, okay? A lot of those dogs need to be in fully anesthetized to overcome that, okay? We might need to do something like a midazolam CRI. Hmm. We might need to get them on the IV Keppra, okay? There's lots of things to consider, but essentially you don't treat tetanic seizures any differently than you treat seizures from other causes. Good to know. And then, um, let's see. You might have to intubate some of the most severely affected patients if they are unable to properly ventilate themselves, okay? So you could do like a trach tube, okay, if they're having really bad laryngeal spasm. Some patients might just need supplemental oxygen. And then we need to monitor really carefully for aspiration pneumonia, as we talked about earlier, and treat that if it comes up. Lastly, you might use parasympatholytic agents. These are going to be like glycopyrrolate or atropine for any really low heart rates that we're seeing. And then we have just additional supportive care that we need to consider. So, of course, you're going to need to do some pretty aggressive nursing care, especially for your patients that have the super poor mobility. So you want to make sure that they're in a quiet, dark room to prevent any type of, you know, stimulation um, that's going to 
you make them go crazy or bananas again. Yeah. At the ER for this kind of thing, we actually have little like sleeping eye masks that we'll put on the patients. <laughs> like say they come in for marijuana ingestion and uh-huh. they're really freaking out. We'll put like a literal human sleep mask on them. Interesting. In a bonus, a lot of times they have silly illustrations on the front. So mm-hmm. then the animal's just sitting there with like a <laughs> hamburger and hot dog eye mask on, you know. I wonder if you could use 10 you know, out of 10. Have you seen groomers use those wraps around the ears? Oh, yeah. For when they do force drying mm-hmm. so they don't have to hear the loud noise that might be helpful to you. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, you want them to have some nice, soft, squishy bedding to prevent any type of uh, bed sores. Make sure you turn them you know, super frequently um, set timers, minimize the risk of getting those bed sores. You might need to do a urinary catheter if urine retention has happening. Any wounds, you're going to need to um, clean those up, debride, flush, and clean them. You can use some peroxide if you need to. It'll inhibit the obligate anaerobes. This is like one of the only times that um, I've ever seen a veterinary like <laughs> source. Peroxide. Yeah, it'd be like, put peroxide in the wound. Like when I was going through vet school, everybody would be like, do not. You just don't <laughs> use peroxide ever. Don't give it orally. Don't put it on the dog. Like just don't do it. At Auburn, mm-hmm. Dr. Swain was at the Scott Ritchie Research Center and he was like the like, most prominent wound care guy. I took his wound care elective, and I swear that the man said, in really contaminated wounds, use peroxide, use it once. And that's it. But it'll bubble all that shit out of there or whatever, you know? And so that's the only other time I've ever heard anybody else, like, of authority be like, yeah, put some peroxide on it. Everybody else is like, (laughs) do not touch the wound with peroxide, you a-hole. Because it can, like, that bubbling action can damage like newly forming cells and things Mm -hmm. like that but so yeah in this case you want to get all that shit out there Mm -hmm. so what i think one time not serial peroxides we're talking about one and initial one and done exactly jj (laughs) okay so you can also use some good old iv or sub q fluids to address any dehydration and also to provide that supportive maintenance care especially for patients that can't drink. Mm -hmm. Uh, You may have to use a feeding tube. You can do nasoesophageal, nasogastric, or gastric for the the creatures that cannot eat because they have the luck jaw. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. or they can't swallow. Mm -hmm. If using a a feeding tube is going to be too much, too complicated, just not ideal, you can do um, parenteral feeding, which is sustenance through an IV. Let's talk about monitoring. Okay. So obviously the big thing here is going to be to monitor for the presence of these secondary complications of ongoing muscle contractions that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. And then obviously the intensive supportive care that these generalized tetanus patients need comes with some built-in monitoring. Like JJ mentioned, you're going to be turning these patients often. You're going to be making sure that they're not having any regurg or anything like that. You're going to be making sure that uh, they're pooping and peeing normally. You're going to be making sure that they're able to get their nutrition and that they're staying well hydrated. So Mm -hmm. that's going to be really intensive care for those guys. So what is the prognosis for the good old tetanus? Well, um, for dogs, the prognosis with tetanus varies. Mm. Most dogs end up with self-limiting disease if you get them treated quickly. Localized tetanus uh, does have a better prognosis overall than generalized tetanus. If we can find a wound to clean and debride, they have a little bit better prognosis as well. Now, obviously, patients that present recumbent are not going to do as well. I always mm-hmm. tell people when I'm working at the ER, if their pet comes in on a stretcher, it can't stand. It's just laying there. I'm like, there are no good causes of this. Okay. Mm-hmm. No favorable things cause this. And the same is true of tetanus. Okay. And then uh, dogs that develop uh, those secondary complications, uh, seizures, upper respiratory obstruction, pneumonia, et cetera, they all have a poor prognosis. It takes usually about a week uh, for us to start seeing improvement, but we might not see a complete recovery until like three to four weeks later. That's mm. a long ass time. Yeah, it is. 
especially if you're thinking about those with generalized tetanus, you're going to be in the hospital a week, might not be fully recovered for a month. Girl, that's going to be expensive. That's a lot of cupcakes. Emotionally and financially expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about some specific studies. There was one paper that said 50% mortality rate in dogs with tetanus. That was a study of 20 dogs. So 10 lived, 10 did not. Hmm. There are another couple of reports that showed, you know, 9 out of 10 dogs lived. And then 12 out of 13 in another study lived. So some studies are showing a much higher than 50% survival rate. Mm. Yet another study showed that 77% of the dogs with tetanus were still alive at 28 days. (laughs) Okay, so that's good. Mm. Earlier initiation of wound management, earlier antibiotic administration, or even antitoxin administration was not associated with survivors versus non-survivors in this last study with the 77% survival rate at 28 days, which is interesting. And then there was one last study of 61 dogs with tetanus. 18% of those either died or were euthanized because of their symptoms prior to discharge. JJ, mm-hmm. how can tetanus be prevented? Use of the prophylactic tetanus toxin, which is not recommended for dogs and cats because of their naturally low susceptibility. Outbreaks of tetanus, you might see that at places that don't adequately sterilize their surgical instruments. So don't use those cold packs. Yeah, like sterilize your instruments, Mm -hmm. okay? Don't give tetanus to your patients. Yes, Not, not, not cool. Yeah. You know, we don't vaccinate dogs and cats for tetanus, okay? If you've got a horse, super do that, though, okay? Mm -hmm. And if you're a person, super do that. I get my tetanus shot right on time Mm -hmm. because ain't nobody want to die of tetanus. That sucks. Mm -hmm. Super ultra sucks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once, you know, you got the wound, you just got to keep it non-contaminated, hopefully, um, and then monitor for signs of weird bullshit and take them in if they have it, okay? If your dog is grinning sardonically at you, take it to the vet right away, <laughs> all right? Really, the only prevention in this is going to be like, don't invent new and exciting ways for dogs to be exposed. <laughs> they're going to get exposed plenty on their own. Yes. Well, that is a thorough review of tetanus. Mm. So now we need to talk about what happened in Honey's case. When we left Honey last time, why are you laughing? We got tetanus locked down. Rude. <laughs> Damn it, JJ. <sighs> Go ahead. Okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> so when we left Honey's case last, she was grinning sardonically at the veterinarian, and uh, they were like, "Damn, I think this dog has got tetanus." <laughs> so what happened next? So based on our clinical signs, of course, the tetanus was suspected. And Honey was given an antitoxin as well as some antibiotics. She got the good old Clavamox. Sounds good. And some oral NSAIDs, Meloxicam. Okay. For the cyst. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh And instructions to come back the next day for reassessment. Well, what happened the next day when she came in? So she came in the next morning, and her gait and jaw were noticeably stiffer. Uh-oh. Yeah, yep. The owner had to feed soft food instead of her usual kibble. So she got some eggs and some chicken. Hmm. Yum, yum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, that sounds good. So she had been able to posture to potty, but was still subdued. To uh, help out with the muscle tension, she was given an injection of acepromazine. Okay, and how did she continue to do? So over the next couple of weeks, she was seen twice a week for a recheck and monitoring. Uh, her stiffness continued to progress, and uh, so she received a second dose of the antitoxin a week, after, a week after the initial presentation. Okay. Due to her jaw stiffness, the antibiotic tablets were abandoned in favor of a long-acting injectable, which was amoxicillin. She was also prescribed acepromazine tablets to be given once a day, and the tablets were a lot smaller than her antibiotics were, so she was able to tolerate that to aid with her muscle relaxation. Her temperature was monitored regularly, and she was fed by mouth with some chicken and rice at home and massaged Love by it. her owner. Absolutely. Good owner. Absolutely. I like to eat chicken and rice when I don't feel good, too. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and a massage. Just, yeah, getting a massage is also a bonus. Mm-hmm. Like, that's fantastic. 
Okay, moving into the second week, how was she doing? Okay, second week, uh, her symptoms started to improve, and she was able to walk, walk further into her garden, as well as returning to her usual habit of barking in the waiting room. <laughs> I'm, imagine, I'm imagining, like, you know, I know those dogs, right? Uh-huh. That you're just like, honey's Burr. here. You know, she's <laughs> entered the building. There's just nonstop exuberant <laughs> vocalization. Yep, I'm imagining a beagle. <laughs> So the, they were able to stop the antibiotics after two weeks of repeat injections and no more antitoxin was given since Honey was continuing to improve. So 12 days after our initial presentation, the owner noticed some unusual movements when Honey was asleep. She was described uh, paddling-like activity lasting less than a minute and often recurring a minute or two after ceasing. <gasps> REM sleep disorder! <laughs> we just talked about that, didn't Ding, ding, ding. Okay. <laughs> She had always been a big dreamer, and it was uncertain whether this was typical dreaming movements or exasperated by muscle tension or seizure-like activity. And the owner was asked to keep a record of the occurrence, duration, and severity of each episode to be reviewed at her next checkup uh, later that week and to change the timing of the ACE promazine tablet to before bed. 18 days in, Honey's lockjaw improved well enough to give her Tylenol-3 tablets. Yep. Again, and uh, they have a different they have a different brand name in the UK, but it's essentially um, paracetamol and codeine. And this was over concerns about painful muscle tension. Yeah, and they also fed her a formulated wet diet rather than her chicken and rice, which helped to resolve some diarrhea she had been having. Uh oh. <laughs> However, the nighttime paddling continued, not improving or worsening, just. You know, sounded increasingly like seizures instead of the dreaming. So the decision was made to start her on phenobarbital and to remove the acepromazine. Okay. And at this point, Honey's daytime stiffness was improved to the satisfaction of the clinician and the owner. Fantastic. So the phenobarbital was successful in treating the nighttime movement and so was continued at the standard dose for two months before weaning her off of them completely. Since then, there have been no more seizures. Yay! So it sounds like Honey made a full recovery from tetanus. Go Honey. Which is like amazing. Mm -hmm. But like we mentioned earlier when we were going over the disease, like it took a hot minute for her to get better. It did. Um, So like we're at 18 days post-presentation. So she read the book there. I mean, Mm -hmm. fitting into that three-ish week time frame. I got scared when she started Mm -hmm. to get worse. I know, me too. I think this is one of those diseases where you just have to kind of stand in the pocket, you know, and be Mm -hmm. like, all right, I know this is the most logical thing that's happening. And now I just have to give medicine and supportive care time to work. Gosh, can you even just imagine like people and animals, too, but like in the olden days, pre-antibiotics, all of this shit happening to your loved ones and relatives and valued livestock animals and maybe even your dogs and cats. And you're like. I can't do anything to help with this other than just watch them. I mean, God, I don't even want to think about it. And I can't imagine, like, just from, like, just from my experience of really heavy weightlifting from powerlifting, okay, the amount of muscle soreness I have with strongly contracting your muscles for short periods of time, right? Imagine if you were just constantly muscularly contracted I mean, and couldn't undo like it feels holy just shit. like a full body muscle cramp mm-hmm. yeah like a charlie horse mm-hmm. but for your face in every part of your body in your tail the whole Tylenol too <laughs> yeah i would be one i would be one i mean i think yeah like, pain medicine was definitely appropriate in this caramel, case something because damn yeah that mm. yikes well, so um, I hope you guys have enjoyed this case about tetanus. I really enjoyed putting it together and doing the literature review, um, especially, you know, with the Halloween adjacent mm-hmm. uh, information about the whole demonic possession thing. Anyway, yeah. um, please look that up. Like, if you're interested, it's pretty exciting. I think I maybe mentioned it on the podcast before even. <laughs> it sounds on brand for me to have mentioned that before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like one of my number one, like, party you know, conversations. I know I'm not very social. Anyway, so many thanks to Kazaya for putting this together and sending us this case all the way from the UK. 
Yes, you're amazing. (laughs) We hope that when you hear this in the UK, that you enjoy it. Absolutely. Kaziah did also say that Honey's owner is going to be listening to our episode. Pet Honey for us. Pet Honey for us. Tell Honey she's a good girl. Right. Yeah, the Honey (laughs) is a a pseudonym. Okay. But Pet Honey for us and tell her that she is a good girl. Mm -hmm. And we really appreciate you allowing your veterinarian to share this case with us. Uh, because um, we uh, have a pretty decent-sized audience, and I think that this is going to help a lot of people be able to recognize these classic signs of tetanus if they see it in a dog or a cat. Mm-hmm. Save a dog. That's right. I just want to take a moment before we sign off to thank everyone who ordered merchandise through our summer merch store, because that helps us with the cost of providing this podcast to you free of charge. You notice that we have never run ads. JJ and I fund this out of our own pocket, <laughs> producing a podcast um, with uh, all original content. We have never recycled content on you guys is expensive. Um, it's it's not um, cheap and there's a lot of personal um, and emotional labor that goes into this. <laughs> lots and lots of time uh, on my part and JJ's part and Ben's part too. And so we want to keep providing you this great content for free. So you guys helping us with doing things like buying our merchandise occasionally really helps in that front. It helps us keep the podcast free and accessible to everyone. And we really appreciate that. Yes, thank you. If you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Sure do. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.